say thank you for being flexible. I mean, obviously, this is not our, our regular space this morning. We're usually in the Civic Center, um, in the Exchequer room at the Civic Center, but I just want to say thank you for being flexible and coming this way across the parking lot and, and meeting here at the Gladstone Inn this morning. Um, it is something that is contained with who we are as a, as a body. We've said all along as a church that we want to be a church that doesn't identify with the space, but identifies as the people of God um, because of what Jesus has done for us. Um, and so sometimes we get thrown, we get kicked out, and we got to come over here, or we got to go somewhere else. So there'll actually be a few times this fall where we need to, to, to go to a different location here, and, uh, and that's okay. It's okay. I know that it adds a little bit of inconsistency, but for us in our world, like this is just the way that, that things are. Um, so I appreciate your flexibility and your understanding as we as we think through, as we process, and as we um, decide um, that's who we are as, as a body. So um, this morning, and we're, we're continuing in Luke chapter 10. This is where we've been. If you haven't been with us, we've been in Luke chapter 10 for a couple of weeks now. So um, take your copy of God's Word and open it there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are a few Bibles back on that back table still. Feel free to, uh, feel free to uh, go grab one. Um, it's, it's not a problem at all. Or just go ahead and pull it up on, the, on your phone. It's really important for us to look together at God's Word and to see it in front of us, whether it's on your screen or whether it's... Um, in uh, printed form. It's really important to do that because I want you to see that these are the words of God and not, not my words. Like it's, that, That's really important. Because I can get up here and I can talk about a lot of things, but if it's not jiving what you're seeing in front of you um, in Scripture, um, then uh, that, that's problematic. Um, and we want to be faithful to the text because of this is sort of what we're going to even talk about today as we dive into this text this morning. Like we want to see that God's word is speaking clearly to us, and we want to see that we are being faithful and true to the text itself. So, if you've got your copy, now go ahead and, and if you've opened to Luke chapter 10, look with me. We're going to start and we're going to read in verse 38, and we're going to read through verse 42 this morning. But let me give you a, a bit of background before we get there, right? So, so far, in the last couple of weeks, we talked about a couple of characters. We're talking about four characters in Luke chapter 10. First is the lawyer that Jesus interacts with. Second is the Samaritan that Jesus tells a story about. And this morning, we're going to talk about Mary um, in, in verses 38 through 42. And the next week, we're going to talk about Martha. And what we've alluded to is that, read with me, look at verse 27 in Luke 10. And he answered, this is the lawyer speaking, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So what we've said is that that verse is sort of the thesis statement and gives us the grounds and the understanding for this whole, this whole, uh, this whole sort of chunk of, of text. Verses 25 through uh, 42 in Luke chapter 10. And why? Why do we see that? Because we see the great commandment given here, right? Uh, the lawyer, by his own admission, is saying that the greatest commandment um, is to, uh, to love the Lord your God and then subsequently to love your neighbor as yourself. And so within this text, what Luke wants to show us then is these interactions that Jesus has and the story that Jesus tells that identify, that highlight those different things for us. So loving the Lord your God um, is where we're going to go this morning as we think about Mary. She is a positive example of what it means to love the Lord your God. But last week we talked about the Samaritan, who was a positive example of what it meant to love your neighbor. 
Um, and then if we go back even two weeks, then we see that the lawyer, as he stood up, and as he, the, we have some textual clues here that, that tell us, like um, uh, Luke actually says, put, he puts Jesus to the test in verse 25. And, and then he says uh, in verse 29 that, that the lawyer was wishing to justify himself. And if he was wishing to justify himself, then we see that um, through the question, who is my neighbor, uh, the lawyer is then taking and giving us an example of what it means to, um, or giving us a negative example of, of loving your neighbor because of his self-centered, exclusive focus. So then we moved out of that, we talked about the Samaritan, how the Samaritan was inclusive, how he, he saw that the call of the gospel was open to everyone and he demonstrated mercy um, despite differences in class, in race, um, in gender. And we're even going to see that a little bit this morning as we consider Mary's uh, interaction with Jesus as well. Um, so again, really important for us to see, love God, love neighbor, um, and those two, two things coinciding with the characters in verses 25 through 42. So this week, as we look at Mary, this is the positive picture of what it means to love God. So let's read these five verses together, and we'll pray, we'll talk about a big idea, and then we'll get in. Okay, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to do all the serving? Then tell her to help me. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, for which shall not be taken from her. Lord God, thank you again this morning as we come to your word. God, we thank you for what it is. God, we thank you that it is divinely inspired. God, that it's sufficient for everything. God, that we know that we can know you through it. So even as we consider Mary here and her posture before Jesus and what that means for us, God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open, that we would hear this clearly this morning that we go here refreshed, ready to live lives in obedience to what you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Okay, so as we've kind of gone through this, this series, we've, we've talked about a few, like a handful of, of, of different uh, big ideas related to each of the characters. So I'm going to give you the big idea this morning uh, as we look at Mary. So it's simply this. Mary's interaction with Jesus gives us an example of a restful, trusting, instructable posture that teaches us about loving God. Again, Mary's interaction with Jesus gives us an example of a resting, restful, trusting, instructable posture that teaches us about loving God. So there's really two things that we want to talk about. Last week when we thought about the, the Samaritan, we thought about the mercy that he demonstrated and that there were no boundaries on that mercy, no, no boundaries on that, that he transcended uh, that class, he transcended um, socioeconomic class, and he transcended, uh, and he transcended race um, in order to demonstrate mercy to an individual and how even coming out of the, the, the passage that we talked about beforehand, that it really shook up the lawyer's world. So now we see two individuals that, that Jesus is interacting with, Mary and Martha, 
And, and we see that positive example in Mary, but then we see as we move into next week that Martha's world is going to be shook up a little bit by what Jesus is going to, to say to her. But this, this week as we consider Mary, we just want to consider two things, right? Just, just her posture, like what is she doing? What is the action that's going on? We're going to talk about two, right? She is, one, she is seated. She is simply seated. She is seated at the feet of Jesus. And then the second one is listening. She's listening to his word. She's hearing what Jesus is saying. So let's take these two things in turn. So you'll, you'll notice, in, in contrast to what it means to, to love your neighbor, it's almost like a uh, this man was traveling on this road, this dangerous journey, this really risky journey, and, and he was traveling along, and, and he had to go on his way. He had to take action, and he had to, had to demonstrate mercy to, uh, to the man who was beaten on the side of the road. In contrast to that, in contrast to what it means to love neighbor, this is the big umbrella overarching idea. Um, Mary is simply seated at the feet of Jesus. She is sitting down. This activity is primarily a passive one. Don't get me wrong, it's still an activity. It's still something that she's doing. She had to make a conscious decision to sit down at the feet of Jesus, but um, it is a primarily passive one. So, in, in Jewish culture, any learner or any disciple would sit down at the feet of their rabbi or their teacher. They would sit there. That was the disciple's rightful place, right? And so, any, any learner, any disciple, so that's where we get the idea that, that Mary was, had an instructable posture. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, assuming the posture um, of a disciple or learner. And there's something really important here that we can't gloss over when we look at this text. So it's been a while, um, but quite a while ago we were talking about the I am statements of Jesus. And when he was, and when he was speaking to, uh, to his disciples, to the crowds, to a bunch of places, there are seven of those that are contained in John's gospel. We talked about each of those. Um, and we, we looked back at a couple of occasions, this wasn't necessarily one of them, but we looked back at a couple of occasions to John chapter 4 and Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. And we said that that was really foundational, that was really important, because she was a woman. She was at the well in the middle of the day, and Jesus went out of his way. He was like hanging out with his disciples, he was like, I'm going to go over there. He goes over there, and goes and interacts with this woman, right? She's there in the middle of the day, which means women would go to the well in the early morning to beat the heat. They'd go there in the early morning. So she went there at the beginning of the day. And that was, uh, that's over in, at the, in the middle of the day, instead of the beginning of the day, and that's a direct indicator that she was an outcast in her, in her, in, in her culture, in, in her town. So she was there, and on top of that, a rabbi, or a teacher, or a Jewish man in general, would not have an interaction like Jesus was about to have with a woman in, in, uh, in John chapter 4. So there's something very similar happening to here, here. Because for a rabbi in, in first century Palestine, he would not um, I'll probably allow a woman to sit at his feet in here. So there's something going on here. This is almost like flowing directly out of the Good Samaritan, where we see the Good Samaritan um, and the lawyer, his exclusive posture. We see this, this direct inclusion made by the Samaritan, and then we see that Jesus is actually living that out. He's actually including all types of people into his ministry. 
It's saying that he is, he is, he's saying, hey, it doesn't matter. The, these different things, they don't matter. Um, what you think externally makes you different doesn't. You are created in God's image. Your humanity is contingent on being created in God's image and not on your gender, your race, your class, etc. So we might gloss over this a bit when we see this, but we see that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. We understand that Jesus' ministry is profoundly unique. It is a profoundly unique ministry. So if we go back to, to, to chapter 8, just a few chapters, we see kind of the build-up to this. We, we know that just the first few verses in chapter 8, if you just want to flip back to those, um, we see in verses 1 through 3 um, that there are actually women who are, who are like... Um, who are hanging out with Jesus, sort of in his entourage. He's like, he's like this group of people who are following him. There are women again. This is this is countercultural. Um, Jesus is healing these women. Um, they're following him, and then we also see in verse three that a woman is supporting his ministry financially. So we see that Jesus, um, Jesus is is actually uh, engaging this section of the culture in a way that no one was at that time. So. And this is, a, this is a bit of a step away from what our culture believes about the Bible, right? Because our culture looks at the Bible and says, hey, this is a misogynistic, xenophobic book that doesn't have any kind of connection. It is degrading to women, but absolutely not. Like, this is a progressive understanding of what it means to be a woman because it sees women as uh, humanity. And so what's our takeaway from this? Like, this isn't necessarily, a, it is a challenge, but it's not necessarily like as big of a challenge for us in, in our society. What it is simply saying to us is that when we walk down the street, we see people that look different from us or act differently, fall into a different class. Like the gospel is for those people just as much as it's for us. It is for every single individual. It is a universal call to everyone. Jesus' ministry is overwhelmingly inclusive. And again, just like we said about the Samaritan last week, the call of the gospel is open to all types of people. Jesus calls all types of people, male, female. Um, it doesn't matter about race, to sit at his feet and to hear what he has to say, to learn um, as those who um, are called. So birth and bloodlines and borders, these are all transcended in Jesus. His work on the cross removes those things. And so even when Paul writes, Paul writes to the Romans and he's writing, he's building this argument to the Romans and he's, he gets to verse, or he gets to chapter 8 and then he says, he says, I'm sure that you're familiar with it, he says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we think about that, when we think about that, that verse, we think to ourselves, well, there's something going on in my world, like circumstances. But what Paul is writing now, what he's, what he's writing to is a, a people who are saying, well, we're so segmented and divided up in our culture um, that when he says nothing can separate us, he's saying nothing can separate us in the same way that, that um, your circumstances can't separate you, your birth, your bloodlines, your borders can't separate you from the love of Jesus either. And so conventions here are going out the window. Jesus is pushing aside these conventions, these, these things that, that, that have been accepted, widely accepted for, for such a long time in, in, uh, in Jewish culture. He's pushing them aside and saying, 
um, women come, sit at my feet, hear me. He's saying Samaritans now can keep the law. They can love their neighbor. They can, uh, they can uh, love the Lord their God. So, so as we look at this text then, um, as we're considering uh, Luke chapter 10, um, we, we need to take away from this the fact that she's seated at the feet of Jesus, that Mary assumes this physical posture. Um, this is in step with resting and trusting and sitting, uh, in, in sitting at the feet of Jesus. She is trusting Jesus. She's trusting the fact that he's not going to cast her aside and say, no, you're a woman, can't be here right now. He is trusting her in or she is trusting him in this way. So we see seated, resting, trusting, instructable position by Mary. The second thing we see then is that she is listening, right? In, 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 verse, um, in verse 39. It says that he, she is seated at the Lord's feet and then she is listening to his word. Um, this, is, this is really important. This is what we're going to kind of key on for the rest of our time together this morning. This is really important because of the word that, that, that Luke uses here, that he is listening, or she is listening to his word. She is listening to Jesus' word. This is really important for us because if we go all the way back to the beginning, when, when Luke is writing his gospel, he's writing it to, um, he addresses it to Theophilus, right? And he, he says that he is recording this word, and this word is a divine word. That it is something that came directly from God. And this is the same idea, this is the same approach as, as he takes at the beginning of this. He's like, hey, I'm recording this for your benefit. As you might see the very words of God. And so when Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, she is, she is recognizing that his word is more than that of just a mere man. She is recognizing that his word is something that is divinely inspired, that is happening now, um, right before her very eyes. So she... She puts herself right in front of Jesus and she listens to his word, something that is divinely inspired. Um, and, and whenever Luke uses this, this term, too, whenever he uses the, the word word, whenever he uses the word word, he's talking about the good news. When Jesus was speaking to her, um, we, can, we can surmise, is that he's speaking to her how she might inherit eternal life. The same question that the lawyer asked just a few verses earlier, when he said, how, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus was now speaking clearly to her um, how she might inherit eternal life. Um, listen to this. One commentator writes this as, as, a, uh, as a direct understanding of this concept. The centrality of this theme is evident from the use of the term word in sense of the divine proclamation over 40 times in Luke Acts. Luke uses this over the course of this gospel, and then Luke also wrote the book of Acts. He uses this term um, 40 different times, and it's always about... Oh, this is me, I'm sorry. I, end quote. Um, the, he uses this always in the, the case of salvation. Okay, so re-quote. Re the, the one thing needed above all else is hearing the proclamation of how one can inherit eternal life or be saved. For only by hearing the word, retaining it, and persevering can one be fruitful. To listen to Jesus as Mary did is the best thing one can do, even better than serving we're going, to, we're going to touch on that next week when we get to Martha. Even better than serving, the one thing that someone can do is hear the Word of God and to retain it and persevere in it. So, that brings us to this place then where we're looking at 
Mary's physical posture and the activity that she takes, which is sitting and listening. And when she takes that posture, when she sits and she listens, she's demonstrating what Luke is communicating to us in this passage is that she's demonstrating love for God. Really important here for us to, I know it's such a small part of this text, but really important for us to, to take that and digest that and think about that. So what we're going to do now is just move to a few takeaways for us. Like, what does this mean for us, right? Um, I'm, I'm going to give you two, two of them. Um, and I think these are really like low lying for us, and I think, but they're, but they're of utmost importance. They are so incredibly important. <coughs> The first is simply this. Um, study your Bible well. Um, and, and I know that, that sounds really simplistic, and you're like, okay, but okay, so, so, let's, okay, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. So I want, I want to give you this, this quote here. Um, this is from J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. Just an incredible book. If, if you would like a copy, I have one copy. If you'd like me to... Amazon it for you, or just like you have a computer, so you can do that yourself. But write that down because it is an incredible, incredible book. He writes this in, in, in that book. Disregard the study of God, and you sense yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. And that, that is what sums this up for us. I think, I think it's a common thought that if... And it, let me, well, no, I'm going to just say this. I think it's a common thought that if Jesus showed up here today, that we would be inclined, more inclined, to hear what he has to say to us. Like, if you walked through those doors and walked up here and started talking right now, we'd be like, oh man, that's Jesus, we're going to listen. I think there's a couple of problems with that, right? I think, um, uh, I think first of all, that, that betrays our lack of understanding of what the Bible is. I think that betrays the lack of understanding what the Bible is, right? So Peter, when Peter was, Peter was with Jesus. Jesus went up this mountain in, at, towards the end of his ministry. He went up to this mountain, and he got up to the mountain, and he was transfigured. What that means is that he took on his glory, his heavenly body, um, his perfect body. So when Jesus was here on earth, we affirm that he was fully God, but he was also fully man, Right? So those two things, completely, totally, 100% God, 100% man. Um, but he inhabited a body that was like, it, it was decaying, it was aging, it was getting older. That body was something that he, that was part of what he, but when he went up this mountain, he was transfigured. He had his perfect body on. And Peter saw that. He and John went up with Jesus and James. They went up to the top of this mountain and saw that happen. It was like an incredible thing. That doesn't happen every day. I don't know how many of you recently have seen someone transfigured. I don't think, I don't think anyone in this room has. But um, he went up, saw that happen, and then he came down, and then later in Peter's life, he writes. He writes in his letter. He writes, I saw that happen, but there is something more sure, and it's this. There is something more sure, and it is the Word of God, the divinely inspired Word of God. So we betray our lack of understanding of what the Bible is when we think that if Jesus walked through those doors this morning, that we would listen, right? That we would hear something more than we're, than we're hearing when we look directly into God's Word together or as individuals. 
The author of Hebrews tells us that the, the word of God is living and active. That it is alive. It is alive. It is living. It is active. It is, it is moving. It is working on our hearts all of the time. And John writes, John, who was also up on that Mount of Transfiguration, says that not only is this God's word, but Jesus is God's word. Jesus is God's divine proclamation. He was there when creation was spoken into existence. He had agency and he made all of that happen. We sort of approach, we approach our Bible, we look at this, we come to this each day, and we think to ourselves, oh, um, okay, so I'm going to read this now. Um, and then I do this, okay, so this is not me saying I do anything different. I, I look at God's Word, and then all of a sudden I'm looking at 39 ways, 39 different cats doing backflips on BuzzFeed. That's where I am all of a sudden. And I'm like, what am I doing? Where, where am I? And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, that is exactly an indicator of what I believe to be true about God's Word. We should like, well, do these deep dives on YouTube videos, and all of a sudden it's like, it's like, you know, like, I'm three or four videos down this line. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what, what am I doing with my time? If, if I believe that God has spoken to me directly and has revealed truth about himself to me in his word, how am I three or four videos down the line on YouTube watching, like, I don't know what? doesn't matter. So what I mean, do you, what I mean, what, what do I mean then when I say our takeaway is read your Bible well? I mean, I mean this, okay? Rebecca and I, my wife and I, were talking about this just last night. I think, I think one of the primary problems that we do is we, we open up our Word, we open up the Bible, we read a passage, and then we immediately ask the question, what does that mean for me? What does it mean for me? What does that mean for me? That's just like where our minds go. Um, and the, the question inevitably puts you in a cycle of a lackluster approach to, to reading your Bible. It's not a bad question, it's just not the first question you can ask. It's not a bad question at all. In fact, it's a really good question. It's not the first place that you can go. Because it's not immediately apparent to us what it means for us. That we get stuck in the cycle because we're like, we're discouraged. We're like, man, I don't, I don't understand what this means for me. And then we just get stuck in the cycle and we move back. And then we, then we kind of like set it aside for a while. We come back to it and we're like, yeah, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm still not seeing, seeing it. So what I'm advocating to you is this morning to study your Bible well. means to look at it, to understand what, what the author um, was communicating. I hope that you see that this is what we're doing as we're looking at Luke chapter 10. We're looking at what Luke is intending by giving us this, this chunk of text together. By understanding that verse 27 is sort of operating as this thesis statement. If you don't want to call it that, that's fine. But he's giving us this like forecast for what he's going to talk about in the next few verses. You just need to spend time in it and not immediately jump to the question, what does this mean for me? So here's a newsflash. Um, the author in the first century, Luke, is not writing to you as a 21st century reader. He's not. He didn't have you in mind. He had an immediate audience in mind, right? That doesn't mean that God didn't have that when that was penned, when, that, when he sat down and wrote that, when Luke was divinely inspired, he understood that God understood in his infinite wisdom that today we'd be talking about this very text. That's who God is. He stands outside and he looks at it and he says, this is going to impact my people for all of time. But that this author, Luke, was not writing this directly to us. 
So the question, what does this mean to me, then we can see that that's a mis misguided one. And first, we need to understand why it's important to that original audience that Luke is writing to. Then we can understand what's important, right? We can begin to understand as we look at Luke 10, 25 through 42, we can begin to understand the point is to love one's neighbor, to love the Lord your God. I, th I think a common objection to, to thinking about this is like, well, the Bible is different, right? Like, I just self-admittedly, I said, I said the Bible is a different document. It's, it's, it is God's divinely inspired word. And so, um, so if it's different, we should read it differently. And the, the answer to that question is yes and no. Like, yes and no. There's a balance here. There's, there's nuance here. Yes, we should pick it up and we should read it with more reverence and weight than your Nicholas Sparks novels. But, at the same time, like, that was a joke, thank you. Uh, um, but, like, but no, because God chose to use this means to communicate who he is, right? God chose this means to communicate who he is. He chose to, to take human authors and to have them write down on, on papyrus or whatever they were writing on. And this is a little abstract, but I, won't, I, won't, I want to say it because I think it's really important. So all of this literature, right? We live in an information age where like, information is like doubling like every 30 seconds or something crazy like that. The world is just saturated with information, saturated with books, saturated with articles, saturated with, with text on paper or you know your Kindle or whatever. That's the world we live in. But God ordained all of that. God ordained all of those things into existence to set the stage for how he was going to communicate truth about who he is. He said that, that BuzzFeed article about those 39 cats doing backflips and the text that's in there, he's ordained, he's ordained that to happen in order to set the stage for how he was going to communicate truth about who he is. And, and so if that, if, that, if that is a little abstract... Like, here's an example that maybe will help. Um, when I say set the stage, I want to I play off that metaphor, right? So if you go to a play, or you see a movie, right? It wasn't that the filmmaker, the playwright, or the director just got up one day and they thought to themselves, I'm just going to make a, a movie. And then they just went out and shot it. Like, no, they, they built a set, right? They set the stage. They, they, they wrote a script. They made costumes. And all of those are set within a, a particular context. All those are set together. It would be weird if you if you went home and pulled up on Netflix and want, want to watch Gladiator. And you pulled up Gladiator and and uh, and Maximus sends the sword emoji to to uh, to Commodus. That would be weird. That would seem weird. It would seem out of place. It would be absolutely be out of hundred out of place. But I think that the point there is this. I don't know if that helps clarify anything. But this is how we read our Bibles, right? We ignore things like, like the literary elements that are contained, like how God has chosen to communicate who he is to us. We ignore those things and immediately jump to the question, what does this mean for me? And so out of this, I know that the objection is this. Well, that sounds really hard. I guess that's really daunting. There's like some of these things, like you're saying, well, well, that's fine because you're you're just like 
you're, if you're a nerd and you like reading stuff, then that's okay. But that, that's okay. That's fine. If you don't want to nerd out with me, that's okay. Congrats on not being a nerd. <laughs> but here's the deal. We're placed together. It's like we as a people have been placed together in Jamestown, North Dakota in 2016 for a purpose. And that purpose is to know God. To know God and to do what he commands us. To live lives that are constantly sharing the love of Jesus with those who we come in contact regularly in this body and outside. You can't do that if you never engage God's revelation of himself to us. So we get to do this together. If you sit down and look at your Bible and you're like, I can't make it online, I don't know what that is. That's fine. Find somebody who can. Let's do it together. Let's do this together. This isn't primarily meant to be. I think, I think so many, so many like Christian circles, we've come to this place where we thought, well, I can't do it. Nobody else is going to do it for me, so I'm just not going to do it. That, that's not the approach that the Bible gives to us. There are people who are, who are gifted in these areas, who want to come alongside you and, and to talk with you about what you're reading in the Bible. And there are faithful men and women who have like gone before us and written helpful resources and given us all of this wealth of understanding and knowledge. Um, sometimes that's overwhelming again because of this information age. There's such a giant glut of information out there when it comes to um, when it comes to the Word of God. We want to put these helpful tools in our toolbox, and we want to do that. Let me just read that quote again from J.R. Packer. Disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. And that's a real threat for us. Like, that's a real threat for us. I think that we think, we, we see a lot of external things happening in our world, right? We see a lot of external things happening in our world that we think to ourselves, this is threatening to us. But I have to tell you, the biggest threat is internal. The biggest threat is the fact that we as people are sinful and our sinful inclination takes us away and takes us and removes the, the, the desire to know God. So together, let's press in, love God, seek to understand Him and know, uh, know the way that He's communicated truth about Himself and that's in Scripture. This is what it looks like as we look at Mary and as she was seated at Jesus' feet and as He was listening to His Word. Let's do that together. Let's listen to God's Word together. And that should excite us. That should move us away from this sort of like humdrum approach to the Bible. The God of the universe is actively communicating truth to us. We look at this and it doesn't get up and it doesn't move and it doesn't yell at us like I'm yelling at you now. It doesn't do that. That was a joke too. I'm not yelling. But we set it on our shelf and we let it collect dust because we don't know how to read it. We moan and we groan about how much it is, uh, or how much work it is to understand this stuff, but we know all of the rosters of all... 32 or whatever Major League Baseball teams. We know all 86 pages of the NFL rule book. And we know um, we know all of our high school classmates who are voting for Hillary because they posted on Facebook. Like we know all of those things, but we, we don't know our Bible. And again, 
we need to do this together. We need to recognize that this is a corporate exercise. Let's press in and love God by seeking to understand and know God through the way He has communicated truth to us. Okay, so that was a big, long takeaway. First takeaway, read your Bible well. Let's do it together. Let's read it well together. Um, the second thing, I didn't know how better to say this, so I'm going to say it. We're just going to take just a second to think about it. Second is just chill out. Like, Mary, Mary was just chilling out. Okay, so Jesus writes, in, or, or Jesus says this in Matthew 11. Matthew reports it for us in Matthew 11, 28-30. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And this is a big takeaway for us. Like, just chill out. I think for so many of us, we're like, if, if a loving God, if, if that's the command, if the command is to love God, then I've got to do something and I've got to do it now. And that, that's, not, that's not what we see here. That's not what we see here. We don't take this posture very often. Loving God is not trying to do stuff, but it's, it's resting. We don't just wait and rest and trust. That's not our natural inclination. That's part of what it means to be just a prideful human inhabited by sin. How can we demonstrate that we love? We ask this question. How can we demonstrate uh, that we love God if we don't do a bunch of stuff for him? But it's the active recognition, right? There is activity here. There is activity. It's not just putting everything out of your mind. There is activity here. You're actively choosing to rest in God's finished work in Jesus Christ. We're actively recognizing that we can't do anything for Him that demonstrates love for Him. So we rest and we learn and we listen and we, we know Him through His Word. Just a quote, another quote by J.I. Packer, and I want to read this and I'm going to read it straight through without giving you my own commentary. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is eternal life that you may that that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. You have said John seventeen three. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. We read this earlier. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Jeremiah 9, 23-24. What of all the states God ever desires, or ever sees man in, gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of him. Hosea 6, 6. I desired the knowledge of God more than murder. So as we wrap up this morning, just remember this. God's word is given to us so that we might know him. That was his intent. It wasn't to give us a document, to give us a bunch of checklists to go off of. It wasn't to condemn us. It was to actively show us that we can know God. And and subsequently, after that, we then know who we are. It is only in light of knowing who God is that we can truly know who we are as a people. We need to grapple with knowing the one who created us in his image. When we know God, 
then we know what's required of us. Then as we look at verse 27 again, we know that this is what it means to love God with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with all of our strength and our whole mind, to love Him with our whole being. So let's make that our prayer this week, that we go from this place, that we, we look at. I know that, I know that our schedules are just chock full, right? We schedule ourselves like up to the gills with things. It doesn't mean that you go out and cancel all of those. What it does mean is that you, you recognize, you, you move into a place in your heart where you're seated before the Lord, where you're, where you're looking at His Word and seeking to understand to know it well. Not walking in, in the, the condemnation that we feel when we sometimes when we look at it. But knowing that there is no greater freedom afforded to us than that of knowing God. And then let's just do that together. Let's be a people who do that together. You're not on your own. You're here. God has brought you here for a purpose. Let's do this as his people. Let's pray.